Hello once again to another great episode of the Global in the Granite State podcast, a program of the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire. We have another great episode lined up for you today and are so excited to have you listening in. My name, as always, is Tim Horgan, and I am the Executive Director of the Council, as well as your host. In today's episode, we speak with Xiaoming Lu of the Eurasia Group about the video sharing app TikTok and how it is entangled in a geopolitical struggle between the US and China. We also speak with John Bader and Anne Ackerman of the Fulbright Association about the importance of the Fulbright program and how they are supporting this vital citizen diplomacy effort. Before we jump into the interviews, the Council has a number of interesting online speakers programs you may be interested in. On September 8th, we will host Sawar Kashmiri to talk about great power competition, and on September 23rd, we will host retired Admiral James Stavridis to talk about the intersection of climate change and national security. Both events will be live streamed on our website at www.wacnh.org and we hope you will be able to join us. Now, on to the good stuff. Over the past several months, we have heard a lot about the online app TikTok. The US federal government has been concerned about this video sharing app's connections to China owned by a Chinese firm, ByteDance, and is working to force ByteDance to divest from its U.S. operations. This app is used by millions worldwide, mainly younger people, and the number one question I hear about this is, what in the world is TikTok? I wanted to explore this issue further and reached out to Xiaoming Lu, Senior Analyst in Geotechnology at the Eurasia Group. We started off the conversation by talking about what TikTok is. It's a fun app. I think a lot of people say it's a social media app, but I see it more like an entertainment app. A lot of teenagers like to socialize on this platform, but if you just look at the video on it, the type of content, it's produced by like everyday real people and um, low production cost, and it only lasts for like a very short period of time. You almost got like addicted to it once you started watching. I think that's the fun of it. If you haven't seen it, maybe just Google it and try to find a YouTube video that come from TikTok, you'll get a flavor of it. It can sometimes be hard to keep up with all the social media trends these days. From Facebook to Twitter to Instagram, WhatsApp and others, it can seem overwhelming to keep track of them all. However, TikTok has taken off like few others. The app has been so successful. I think it reached a billion users within a few years, like four or five years, compared to other popular apps. I think Instagram, uh, Facebook, they all took over, but this one became a viral short video app globally within a few years. That's the amazing innovation that you see on this platform. So how does a global video app come under such scrutiny from the U.S. government for its data collection practices? We'll get to that in a second. First, here's what we know about the company, ByteDance, who is at the center of this controversy. This is a Beijing headquarter company that has been around for, I believe, less than 10 years. If you look at the founder of ByteDance, his success story is actually not that different from 
say Jeff Benzel or Mark Zuckerberg. I think he came from a very small village in southern China, Fujian province, and he came out out of nowhere. He wasn't like privileged kid or particularly connected by any sense. But I think he worked for one of the major global tech companies in Beijing, and then decided to found his own company. And he really had a global vision. He think his business, a lot of his business footprint should be overseas,、um, and that's what he did. The way he structured his company, in terms of、uh, the short video app part of it, half of it is called Douyin. It's very much Chinese audience focused. Their data is locally stored, and that part of the business fully comply with Chinese laws, whether cybersecurity law, national security law. Um, content regulation, all that, and the other half of their business is called TikTok, and the data it's stored in U.S. with a backup copy in Singapore. Their business model is quite similar, but he purposefully、uh, separated the two operations so he can be complied with rules and regulations in both jurisdictions. And overseas, TikTok also has. Very expensive footprint in India, I believe UK, and other market. I think in terms of market size,、uh, India is probably the biggest.、Um, US is a little bit smaller, but US is more profitable. Now that we know a little bit of background on the company and its owner, as well as its operations, let's dive into the mandate from the US government that ByteDance must sell its US interests by November fifth. This mandate is, as Jiaming states, supposedly. It's about national security and privacy issue. National security-wise, there's a there's a chance. Even the evidence so far is quite thin. Is that TikTok could collect data from its user, and potentially that could be leveraged by Chinese government to conduct covert operation. That's a threat to U.S. national security. And also, you could argue there's a privacy issue. Users' data potentially can be Leaked、um, to say Chinese government if you think that's the biggest threat. So that's the perception that there is the concern about privacy as well as national security. But if you really look at the type of data you can find, even from the back end from TikTok, it's the way they gathered. Process data is not that different from other tech giants like Facebook, Microsoft, Amazon, Google, all that. And、uh, most of the users are like very young people, like we already talked about. And those are typically not the target of covert operation that would jeopardize national security. So that's the counter argument on that side. And also, this is an app that powered. A comedian like Sarah Cooper and the teenagers who organized a no-show at multiple rallies for President Trump's presidential campaign. So I think personally, the president is probably mad at this app. And particularly, so there's a China link to it. We're only like about two months away from the election, and this is very much a election season theater. Very much the ban of TikTok. It's a good fit for Trump's anti-China rhetoric. So I think the Probably the bigger reason is more political、um, than regulatory. I wanted to find out what kind of data they are collecting, so I signed up for an account.、It、felt very similar to other social media apps that I have signed up for. Date of birth, email, and a password was all I needed. Nothing that couldn't be gleaned from publicly available data already. Although I did not reuse. A password I used elsewhere. Their practice is probably in line with 
other companies like the way Google and Facebook collected, or I think probably the closest resemblance or parallel should be Instagram, like the way Instagram gathered data and use that data to feed into their algorithm to provide you personalized content recommendation. That's how they typically use it. I think one scandal they had last year is how they approach young age user data, especially children's data. For a while, their app didn't have a parental control function. And that was not fully complied with U.S. regulation in this area. I think there was a case, uh, probably was FTC. And then after that, they rectified their business practice and brought their business practice in line with the U.S. rule in this area. I think that was one area they admitted they had wrongdoing and they corrected. Other than that, it's very much similar to what Instagram is doing. In case you're not familiar with how Instagram works either, they collect user data to better target ads and suggest content to their users. So if you continually like pictures of mountains, they will suggest more mountain pictures for you. However, if enabled, these apps can collect your contact list, keep track of where your phone is located, and monitor your in-app chats. While this is nice to hear that they are collecting similar data, that does not mean there is nothing to worry about. If you are worried about privacy on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and the like, TikTok can certainly be added to that list. Despite the mandate by President Trump to divest the company in 90 days, the sale is not guaranteed. Recently, ByteDance filed suit to prevent this action from moving forward. I think in the court filing document, there's like six, seven reasons, like the way President Trump used IEPA. It's a very, very expensive use of that emergency, international economic emergency power. And also the executive order traded TikTok, which is the U.S. operation, U.S. data storage, U.S. user-oriented part of the company, the same as Betdowns. Um, that's a China-based entity. There's difference in those two. Um, and also there's lack of dual process in the whole process that White House drafted this EO and released this EO. I think there's like six, seven of them. But I would say because the Trump administration's action on this issue is quite unprecedented. So there's very little previous case on the same issue. It's hard to say what the court judgment will be at this point. I think Huawei filed similar lawsuit before against U.S. federal government, but that case was more national security related. This one, the administration claim is national security related, but I think so far most observers will say the evidence is quite thin. So if it's national security related, deemed by the court, the court is still likely to side with the executive branch on national security issue. But otherwise, I think it's pretty much an open sky and it's hard to say uh, without precedents in this area, what the court ruling will be. Caught in a geopolitical struggle, the Chinese government may see this as a direct attack against one of its homegrown companies. As Xiaoming contends, They definitely think TikTok is being treated very unfairly, and it's a casualty of the U.S. political game uh, in the lead up to November election. As a part of this all, you have recently seen the CCP update its export control law which seemingly would require the Chinese government to sign off on any deal that would involve the technology that TikTok uses for its app. If this is indeed retaliation for U.S. action against a Chinese firm, it does seem to be rather mild. And the way China reacted 
uh, I think generally towards all the recent mounting US pressure on Chinese tech companies so far has been they try to respond with restraint. They try to do targeted proportional response instead of a confrontational, very direct reaction because they don't want to get wound up in this political drama which will further deteriorate the already very very weak bilateral relationship so instead of taking a more direct response to the TikTok ban through the executive order. If you want a, a direct response, China could put some major US companies on their unreliable entity list or launch some defamation campaigns against them, cut them out of supply chains um, from China. Those are possible options on the table, but China chose a very subtle regulatory twist. If you look at the way the Chinese media, state-run media, uh, deliver this development, the way they package in news release and major TV interviews, they are packaging as one of the changes of a general update of China's export control rule, one of like 50 of those. And those updates are due to come out anyway. So timing-wise, they are not packaging it as a retaliation action. But the way Chinese government calculate this is that they think they want to, at the practical level, uh, drag down the case a little bit, uh, hopefully kick the can down the road. So the EO implementation date can be delayed somewhat. And hopefully, or even after the Trump presidency, that will be ideal. But they don't want to do that at the cost of an escalating bilateral tension uh, in this very critical juncture. So I think that's that's the calculation. In the end, what is the final verdict? Is TikTok a national security threat that needs to be dealt with immediately? Is your data any more or less safe with this company than a fully American one? I would think the evidence is very thin in terms of TikTok as a national security threat. The data already leaked from OPM or Equifax, that's more valuable data, and that's data already uh, in the hand of foreign adversary. I would think that a more valuable, bigger treasure trove to mine in compared to the type of data that TikTok collects. In the course of our conversation, we talked about the future outlook for U.S.-China relations. Before we jump to that, however, I want to remind you that the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire is a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization that is working to help people better understand complex global issues. This is not to be construed as an endorsement of any political issues, campaigns, candidates, or programs. This is for informational purposes only and does not represent the thoughts or opinions of the council, its sponsors, or supporters. So, where does the Eurasia Group see U.S.-China relations headed? Oh, I will do a little bit of advertisement for my employer. Your Asia Group is making the prediction that Biden victory after November presidential election is 65%. So hopefully that's a little bit silver lining on the horizon because we think if Biden wins the White House, he will get a chance to take a pause on the bilateral relationship and get more opportunity to reassess this and maybe put things into some kind of more normal state instead of President Trump used to tweet about like billions of terrorists dropping in the middle of midnight and Biden is less likely to do things like that. So I think if we get into a 
Biden victory situation, things will at least for a few months stabilize initially, and then maybe he will rethink some of the Trump administration actions and even consider to take a step back. Um, so that's that situation. But before that, I think between now and, and November, this is um, a very treacherous pass. In the next two months, we keep seeing things getting worse and worse. It's a free fall every week. And I think even maybe three or four months ago, people will say a military confrontation is still unlikely. But after the most recent South China Sea skirmish, I think people will say gloves are off or almost half off. This could get really bad very quickly. So far, Beijing is still trying to exercise restraint and not to retaliate in a way that's provocative. And so far, uh, the Trump administration seems to still care about the trade deal, which is becoming less and less meaningful. Uh, it's still alive technically, but we'll say it's uh, on life support. So we'll see how much guardrail will come off in the next two months. I think the, the drama will continue to unfold. Thank you to Jiaoming Lu, Senior Analyst in Geotechnology at the Eurasia Group for speaking with me on this topic. I hope you found this information useful and that it gives you a better understanding of the multiple layers of the TikTok saga. Fulbright program is anchored in the idea that all of us can own diplomacy. That is John Bader, executive director of the Fulbright Association, the nonprofit alumni organization for the Fulbright program. I spoke with John and the immediate past chair of the New Hampshire chapter, Ann Ackerman, about this program, its importance to U.S. foreign policy goals, and the benefits it brings to the U.S. and to the state. This was the idea that Bill Fulbright had, Senator J. William Fulbright, in the ashes of the world after the Second World War. Looking around and thinking that the world had collapsed into chaos and violence and that we all needed to do something about that. And so in 1946, he crafted legislation which authorized the creation of a program that became known as the Fulbright Program. Therefore, we are almost at the 75th anniversary of this program, which has grown from a handful of countries at the beginning to 165 countries participating with thousands of Fulbrighters every year and an alumni base worldwide that's almost 400,000 people. The idea that we can all participate in the future of this planet in a way that's almost populist. It's a pretty revolutionary idea that diplomacy could be handled by regular people like you and me, rather than ministers and presidents and professional diplomats. The Fulbright program is run through the U.S. Department of State and sets up thousands of exchange opportunities each year, both outbound and inbound. This program provides communities and leaders the chance to live in a different culture, teach, learn, and share with those who might be quite different from them. It is true citizen diplomacy, similar to the International Visitor Leadership Program. 
This nonprofit works to support that effort by being an advocate for the Fulbright program on Capitol Hill to ensure its future. And therefore, we do a lot of work to be sure that members of Congress and the public itself understand the role and impact of the Fulbright program and that this is a valuable and important tool in our diplomatic toolkit. The second thing is to deploy the expertise and the understanding of alumni, both in the United States and worldwide, to promote global understanding, cultural respect. So we think of ourselves as public goods, because the Fulbright program is a federally funded program, that we have been invested by our fellow citizens to be a resource for creating cultural understanding and respect. And so we do a lot of educational programming, a cultural outreach, community engagement. We offer a national conference. We award the Fulbright Prize and a variety of programming designed to engage our alumni and educate the public. With chapters all over the country, the New Hampshire Fulbright Association has been a great partner with the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire over the years. Their support of the Global Tipping Point series has helped us to bring amazing speakers to the state for conversations on important international topics. Ann Ackerman, immediate past president, shares her thoughts on the value that state chapters bring. One of the benefits of having a state chapter like New Hampshire has is that we can continue our Fulbright experience. Whatever country you might have gone to, it doesn't stop when you return home to New Hampshire. Through the chapter, we're able to meet other people who are committed to this idea of people-to-people -people diplomacy, understanding international experiences, getting to know about other cultures and countries. Our membership includes not only alumni of Fulbright, but we have a sizable number of people who share that commitment and have joined the chapter as friends of Fulbright. And what we do is we try to have frequent programs about once a month, and we have these different activities to get together, exchange ideas, learn about various events. We've partnered with World Affairs multiple times, and it provides this extension of our experience on a Fulbright grant, but it also means that the learning and the sharing continues. We have one member who her experience was in post-World War II France in the early 50s. We have other members who had gone abroad to learn, to share an experience, maybe finish a degree as recently as last year. And it's just tremendous opportunity. And I've met some fascinating people. As an educator, I have found that I've been able to take a lot of this into my classroom. And it's just a very rich opportunity. The Fulbright Association has over 380,000 alumni around the world, in over 155 countries, as well as chapters in every state. What is it that drives so many people to join this program and become a citizen diplomat in their own right? It's a sense of continuing mission. 
The idea that you have been changed forever by an experience that has taken you to a foreign culture, to a new set of people, a new set of perspectives, and for the rest of your life, you tee off of that experience in the sense that you have gained from it, you've learned from it, it's changed you as a person, and you've become part of a critical mission, which is to spread international understanding as a way to advance peace. And one of the lovely features is the people who come here, they're eager to learn about the United States, about New Hampshire, and we try very hard to see that they meet people, get an idea of different perspectives, see our state, and of course, through the national program, they will also travel to D.C. and possibly somewhere else. Last year and the year before, our visitors in particular went to the Edward M. Kennedy Senate Institute to learn about how U.S. government operates. And it's a whole great simulation program. But some of our members each year take advantage of that, too. So you not only have a chance to deepen your sense of mission, but you also get an ongoing view of the impact of the program. Not only do these local chapters and the National Association work with adults on these programs, they are also looking to engage a younger audience and to give them international experiences too. One of the things that we're so excited about is a relatively new program offered by the Fulbright Association called Fulbright in the Classroom. And this is an effort that echoes the efforts of organizations like World Affairs Council and others to bring the international to communities that normally don't get that exposure. And so our alumni are signing up in large numbers, albeit deferred by the COVID crisis, to spend time in classrooms, for example, around the state of New Hampshire, especially in more rural areas, to bring that Fulbright experience to children across the state, to share the Fulbright experience, to tell them more about the country that they visited, or in the case of a visiting Fulbrighter, the country that they're from. And that makes the international much more personal, much more intimate, much more understandable and accessible. It demystifies who people are, makes them very real. And that kind of community outreach is so exciting to us, and we're going to be continuing to grow that over the next couple of years. Of course, this year has effectively thrown a wrench in all of the plans of all organizations and businesses. It is the year that just won't quit. Fulbright has not been immune from the COVID-19 pandemic, both on the state and national levels. In New Hampshire, we had a number of programs that were scheduled for March, April, May, and June, and we had to cancel them, but we do have a couple of programs we're going to do via Zoom coming up, one on maritime, one on international elections. We have some members who have been official observers of international elections, but it is different. And of course, we always look forward to working with World Affairs on programs. On the national level, we have also adapted to this crisis by offering as many programs as we can online. For example, this spring, we offered a series of professional development webinars for returning Fulbrighters who had been sent home prematurely. 
yanked away from their adventures, their studies, their research projects, their teaching, and finding themselves a bit at loss, not sure what to do with themselves, and sometimes a bit bitter, understandably. One of our responses to this crisis was to offer a series of webinars offering career counseling to those young Fulbrighters. This fall, October 21 to 23, the Fulbright Association will be offering our annual conference, but done virtually. And we'll have an extraordinary group of speakers from around the world offering interesting insights on a variety of topics. Our theme this year is Where Does the World Go From Here? That's a riff on Martin Luther King's book, Where Do We Go From Here? Because this COVID crisis has put into question so many of the fundamentals of our society. How do we interact with each other? How do we collaborate? What does the future look like when we are at odds with each other for racial reasons or political reasons, cultural reasons, and so on? So we're convening our conference virtually, and everyone is welcome to join as a conversation starter about the future. With so many amazing alumni who have gone through this program, there are always great stories about experiences and programs that got started because of a Fulbright grant. We have an alum who was in Liberia during the revolt. It was quite an experience for her and the people she met. And she and a friend she met at that time who was a Liberian, they did a presentation on it, and we had a short documentary. The whole range of experiences are quite great. This same woman from Liberia and another one of our alum, as I was alluding to earlier, became parts of official U.S. government delegations to observe elections in select countries. And hearing about that, we're going to end up doing a whole program. So we'll be doing a Zoom program on that this spring. Three quick stories. The first was a young woman who had come from Tunisia to study dentistry in the United States. It's difficult to get training in Tunisia. And one of the points that she made to me is that in Tunisia, especially in the rural areas, the Fulbright program represents hope. It offers an opportunity for intelligent and educated young people to get training they could not possibly get in their home country. And then they can return to that country and serve their fellow citizens in all kinds of important ways. The second story is about an older gentleman who had worked for the Congressional Research Service here in Washington. He went on a specialist program to the EU in Brussels, where he did an exchange with information management people working for the parliament. What he wanted to teach them was how the U.S. Congress manages its information systems, all of its hearings, its findings, bills, minutes, et cetera, et cetera. And he was able to teach his European colleagues how we do that. And he went on to do this as a consultant all over the world, helping legislatures manage their information more effectively. And then finally, I tell the story of a young woman who was an English teaching assistantship in rural Turkey. There are areas that Americans go to teach English that may have never seen an American before. And in this part of Turkey, they frankly had never seen 
anyone come by who had come from the United States. And yet there she was in their community for months and months teaching their children an incredibly important skill for the global economy. So where does this amazing program stand today, particularly as the COVID-19 pandemic continues to ravage the world and cause massive shutdowns and closures? As you might imagine, due to the pandemic, the Fulbright program has been suspended. That involved sending a lot of Americans back home prematurely, as I mentioned earlier. But where possible, visiting Fulbrighters here in the United States were allowed to stay, provided that they were safe and able to continue their work. And of course, many of them have done that and remain on their grants, though working virtually. The hope is that starting in January, on a rolling basis, the program will reopen, probably beginning with the Southern Hemisphere and then slowly moving northward. Of course, all of this is dependent on so many health conditions and uh, travel restrictions, diplomatic relations that have not been working particularly well. Obviously, it's embarrassing and impractical that the United States is not allowed to travel to certain countries. It's going to be a challenge, but we operate with the assumption that we will conquer this virus and we'll be able to reopen the program and move forward with the mission that we share with the World Affairs Council. For a final thought, I wanted to give Anne and John the opportunity to tell us why this is such an important program. I think it's very simple. They get to know us. They get to understand how we live, our cultures, because we're a very diverse country. And hopefully they take back a positive image of New Hampshire and the U.S. The scholar Joseph Nye has done a typology of public diplomacy that puts them in three categories, monologue, dialogue, and collaboration. I think that what the Fulbright program is designed to do is to strengthen that last one, collaboration because it is really only by living among people for an extended period of time that you develop relationships that are meaningful enough and invested with trust and understanding in order to create the preconditions for collaboration. And collaboration is really what drives the human race forward. When we work together, when we solve problems together, the world becomes a better place. And there are literally thousands of stories of collaboration that we will be telling in the coming year, celebrating the 75th anniversary of the Fulbright program. All of those collaborations have yielded many great findings, economic partnerships, diplomatic breakthroughs, government solutions, and more. And we look forward to sharing that with your community as the year unfolds. I want to thank John and Anne for joining me for this wonderful discussion. It is always a pleasure collaborating with this great organization. I really enjoy, and so do our members, working with World Affairs Council. We have a lot of common goals, and the ability of two groups such as this to join forces to sponsor programs makes those programs possible. So thank you for those opportunities.
Thank you so much to Xiaoming Lu, John Bader, and Ann Ackerman for speaking with us for this episode of the Global and the Granite State podcast, a program of the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire. Tim Horgan is our host, interviewer, editor, and producer. Our theme song is Admin from Alo Alto. Our interlude music is Total Eclipse by Nathaniel Wyver and Cultural Exchange by Local Logo. Thank you so much for listening in, and you'll be hearing from us again soon. Thank you.